Chapter Eleven of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. We must change the scene for a while, not only to another part of the county of Kent, but to very different people from the worthy widow Clare and the little party assembled at her cottage. We must pass over the events of the night also, and of the following morning up to the hour of nine, proposing shortly return to Harborne House and trace the course of those assembled there. The dwelling into which we must now introduce the reader was a large, old-fashioned Kentish farmhouse, not many miles on the Sussex side of Ashford. It was built, as many of these farmhouses still are, in the form of a cross presenting four limbs of strongly constructed masonry, two stories high, with latticed windows divided into three partitions, separated by rather neatly cut divisions of stone. Externally it had a strong Harry the Eighth look about it, and probably had been erected in his day, or in that of one of his immediate successors, as the residence of some of the smaller gentry of the time. At the period I speak of, it was tenanted by a family notorious for their daring and licentious life, and still renowned in county tradition for many a fierce and lawless act. Nevertheless, the head of the house, now waxing somewhat in years, carried on not only ostensibly but really the peaceable occupation of a kentish farmer he had his cows and his cattle and his sheep and his pigs he grew wheat and barley and oats and turnips had a small portion of hop ground and brewed his own beer but this trade of farming was only a small part of his employment though to say the truth he had given himself up more to it since his bodily powers had declined and he was no longer able to bear the fatigue and exertion which the great strength of his early years had looked upon as sport. The branch of his business which he was most fond of was now principally entrusted to his two sons, and two strong, handsome daughters, which made the number of his family amount to four, occasionally aided their brothers, dressed in men's clothes and mounted upon powerful horses, which they managed as well as any grooms in the county. The reader must not think that, in this description, we are exercising indiscreetly our license for dealing in fiction. We are painting a true picture of the family of which we speak, as they lived and acted some eighty or eighty-five years ago. The wife of the farmer had been dead ten or twelve years, and her children had done just what they liked ever since. But it must be admitted that, even if she had lived to superintend their education, we have no reason to conclude their conduct would have been very different from what it was. We have merely said that they had done as they pleased ever since her death, because during her life she had made them do as she pleased, and beat them, or, as she herself termed it, basted them heartily, if they did not. She was quite capable of doing so, too, to her own perfect satisfaction, for probably few arms in all Kent were furnished with more sinewy muscles or a stouter fist than hers could boast. It was only upon minor points of difference, however, that she and her children ever quarrelled, for of their general course of conduct she approved most highly, and no one was more ready to receive packets of lace, tea, or other goods under her fostering care, or more apt and skilful in stopping a tub of spirits from talking, or of puzzling a custom-house officer when force was not at hand to resist him. She was naturally of so strong a constitution and so well built a frame that it is wonderful she died at all, but having caught cold one night, poor thing, it is supposed in setting fire to a neighbouring farmhouse, the inmates of which were suspected of having informed against her husband, 
her very strength and vigour gave a tendency to inflammation, which speedily reduced her very low. A surgeon, who visited the house in fear and trembling, bled her largely and forbade the use of all that class of liquids which she was accustomed to imbibe in considerable quantities, and for three or four days the fear of death made her follow his injunctions. But at the end of that period, when the crisis of the disease was imminent, finding herself no better and very weak, she declared that the doctor was a fool and ought to have his head broken, and directed the maid to bring her the big green bottle out of the corner cupboard. To this she applied more than once, and then beginning to get a little riotous, she sent for her family to witness how soon she had cured herself. Sitting up in her bed, with a yellow dressing-gown over her shoulders, and a gay cap overshadowing her burning face, she sung them a song in praise of good liquor, somewhat panting for breath, it must be owned, and then declaring that she was devilish thirsty, which was probably accurate to the letter, she poured out a large glass from the big green bottle, which happened to be her bedfellow for the time, and raised it to her lips. Half the contents went down her throat, but how it happened I do not know, the rest was spilt upon the bedclothes, and good Mrs. Ramney fell back in a doze from which nobody could rouse her. Before two hours were over she slept a still sounder sleep, which required the undertaker to provide against its permanence. The bereaved widower comforted himself after a time. We will not say how many hours it required to effect that process. He was not a drunken man himself, for the passive participle of the verb to drink was not often actually applicable to his condition. Nevertheless, there was a great consumption of Hollands in the house during the next week, and if it was a wet funeral that followed, it was not with water, salt, or fresh. There are compensations for all things, and if Ramley had lost his wife and his children a mother, they also lost a great number of very good beatings, for, sad to say, he who would thrash all the country round submitted very often to be thrashed by his better half, or at all events underwent the process of either having his head made closely acquainted with a candlestick, or rendered the means of breaking a platter. After that period the two boys grew up into as fine, tall, handsome, dissolute blackguards as one could wish to look upon, and for the two girls no term perhaps can be found in the classical authors of our language, but the vernacular supplies an epithet particularly applicable, which we must venture to use. They were two strapping wenches, nearly as tall as their brothers, full, rounded, and well-formed in person, fine and straight-cut in features, with large black shining eyes, a well-turned foot and ankle, and, as was generally supposed, the invincible arm of their mother. We are not here going to investigate or dwell upon the individual morality of the two young ladies. It is generally said to have been better in some respects than either their ordinary habits, their education, or their language would have led one to expect. And, perhaps, being very full of the stronger passions, the softer ones had no great dominion over them. There, however, they sat at breakfast on the morning of which we had spoken, in the kitchen of the farmhouse, with their father seated at the head of the table. He was still a great, tall, raw-boned man, with a somewhat ogreish expression of countenance, and hair more white than grey. But there were four other men at the table besides himself, two being servants of the farm, and two acknowledged lovers of the young ladies, very bold fellows, as may well be supposed, for to marry a she-lion or a demoiselle bear 
would have been a light undertaking compared to wedding one of the Miss Ramleys. They seemed to be upon very intimate terms with those fair personages, however, and perhaps possessed as much of their affection as could possibly be obtained. But still the love-making seemed rather of a feline character, for the caresses, which were pretty prodigal, were mingled with, we must not say interrupted by, a great deal of grumbling and growling, some scratching and more than one pat upon the side of the head, which did not come with the gentleness of the western wind. The fare upon the table consisted neither of tea, coffee, cocoa, nor any other kind of weak beverage, but of beef and strong beer, a diet very harmonious with the appearance of the persons who partook thereof. It was seasoned occasionally with roars of laughter, gay and not very delicate jests, various pieces of fun, which on more than one occasion went to the very verge of an angry encounter, together with a good many blasphemous oaths, and those testimonies of affection which I have before spoken of, as liberally bestowed by the young ladies upon their lovers, in the shape of cuffs and scratches. The principal topic of conversation seemed to be some adventure, which was even then going forward, and in which the sons of the house were taking a part. No fear, no anxiety, however, was expressed by any one, though they wondered that Jim and Ned had not yet returned. "'If they don't come home soon, they won't get much beef, Tom, if you swallow it at that rate,' said the youngest Miss Ramley to her sweetheart. "'You've eaten two pounds already, I'm sure.' The young gentleman declared that it was all for love of her, but that he hadn't eaten half so much as she had, whereupon the damsel became wrath and appealed to her father, who, for his part, vowed that, between them both, they had eaten and swilled enough to fill the big hog-trough. The dispute might have run high, for Miss Ramley was not inclined to submit to such observations, even from her father. But just as she was beginning in good set terms, which she had learnt from himself, to condemn her parents' eyes, the old man started up, exclaiming, "'Hark, there's a shot out there!' "'To be sure,' answered one of the lovers, "'it's the first of September and all the people are out shooting.' Even while he was speaking, however, several more shots were heard, apparently too many to proceed from sportsmen in search of game, and the next moment the sound of horses' feet could be heard running quick upon the road, and then turning into the yard which lay before the house. "'There they are! There they are!' cried half a dozen voices, and, all rushing out at the front door, they found the two young men with several companions and four led horses, heavily laden. Jim, the elder brother, with the assistance of one of those who accompanied him, was busily engaged in shutting the two great wooden gates which had been raised by old Ramley some time before, nobody could tell why, in place of a five-barred gate, which, with the tall stone wall, formerly shut out the yard from the road. The other brother, Edward, or Ned Ramley, as he was called, stood by the side of his horse, holding his head down over a puddle, and for a moment no one could make out what he was about. On his sister Jane approaching him, however, she perceived a drop of blood falling every second into the dirty water below, and exclaimed, "'How has I broken thy noddle, Ned?' "'There, let me alone, Jinny,' cried the young man, shaking off the hand she had laid upon his arm, "'or I shall bloody my toggery.' "'One of those fellows has nearly cracked my skull, that's all, and he'd have done it too, if he had been but a bit nearer.' This brute shied just as I was a-firing my pistol at him, or he'd never have got within arm's length. It's nothing, it's but a scratch. 
Get the goods away, for they'll be after us quick enough. They are chasing the Major and his people, and that's the way we got off. One of the usual stories of the day was then told by the rest, of how a cargo had been run the night before, and got safe up into the country. How, when they thought all danger over, they had passed before old Bob Croyland's windows, and how Jim had given him a shot as he stood at one of them. And then they went on to say that, whether it was the noise of the gun, or that the old man had sent out to call the officers upon them, they could not tell. But about three miles further on, they saw a largish party of horse upon their right. Flight had then become the order of the day, but finding that they could not effect it in one body, they were just upon the point of separating, Ned Ramley declared, when two of the riding officers overtook them, supported by a number of dragoons. Some firing took place, without much damage, and dividing into three bodies the smugglers scampered off, the Ramleys and their friends taking their way towards their own house, and the others in different directions. The former might have escaped unpursued, it would seem, had not the younger brother, Ned, determined to give one of the dragoons a shot before he went, thus bringing on the encounter in which he had received the wound on his head. While all this was being told to the father, the two girls, their lovers, the farm servants, and several of the men, hurried the smuggled goods into the house, and raising a trap in the floor of the kitchen, contrived in such a manner that four whole boards moved up at once, on the western side of the room, stowed the different articles away in places of concealment below, so well arranged that even if the trap was discovered, the officers would find nothing but a vacant space, unless they examined the walls very closely. The horses were then all led to the stable, and Edward Ramley, having in some degree stopped the bleeding of his wound, moved into the house, with most of the other men. Old Ramley and the two farm servants, however, remained without, occupying themselves in loading a cart with manure, till the sound of horses galloping down was heard, and somebody shook the gates violently, calling loudly to those within to open in the king's name. The farmer instantly mounted upon the cart and looked over the wall, but the party before the gates consisted only of five or six dragoons, of whom he demanded in a bold tone, "'Who the devil be you that I should open for you? Go away, go away, and leave a quiet man at peace.' "'If you don't open the gates, we'll break them down,' said one of the men. "'Do if you dare,' answered old Ramney boldly, "'and if you do, I'll shoot the best of you dead.' "'Bring me my gun, Tom. Where's your warrant, young man? "'You are not an officer, and you've got none with you, "'so I shan't let any boiled lobsters enter my yard, I can tell you.' "'By this time he was provided with the weapon he had sent for, "'and one of his men, similarly armed, had got into the cart beside him. "'The appearance of resistance was rather ominous, "'and the dragoons were well aware that if they did succeed in forcing an entrance, "'and blood was spilt, the whole responsibility would rest upon themselves if no smuggled goods should be found, as they had neither warrant nor any officer of the customs with them. After a short consultation, then, he who had spoken before called to old Ramley, saying, We'll soon bring a warrant, then look to yourself. And thus speaking, he rode off with his party. Old Ramley only laughed, however, and turned his back into the house, where he made the party merry at the expense of the dragoons. All the men who had been out upon the expedition were now seated at the table, dividing the beef and bread amongst them, and taking hearty draughts from the tankard. 
Not the least zealous in this occupation was Edward Ramley, who seemed to consider the deep gash upon his brow as a mere scratch, not worth talking about. He laughed and jested with the rest, and when they had demolished all that the board displayed, he turned to his father, saying, not in the most reverent tone, "'Come, old fellow, after bringing our venture home safe, I think you ought to send round the true stuff. We've had beer enough. Let's have some of the Dutchmen.' "'That you shall, Neddy, my boy,' answered the farmer. "'Only I wish you had shut that rascal you fired at. However, one can't always have a steady aim, especially with a fidgety brute like that you ride.' And away he went to bring the Hollands, which soon circulated very freely amongst the party, producing in its course various degrees of mirth and joviality, which speedily deviated into song. Some of the ditties that were sung were good, and some of them very bad, but almost all were coarse, and the one that was the least so was the following. It's wonderful, it's wonderful, this famous London town, with its alleys and its valleys and its houses up and down, but I would give fair London town its court and all its people for the little town of Biddenden, with the moon above the steeple. It's wonderful, it's wonderful to see what pretty faces in London streets a person meets in very funny places. But I wouldn't give for all the eyes in London town one sees a pair that by the moonlight looks out beneath the trees. It's wonderful in London town how soon a man may hold by art and slight or main and might a bright sum of gold. Yet give me but a pistol and one rich squire or two, a moonlight night, a yellow chaise, and the high road will do. This was not the last song that was sung, but that which followed was interrupted by one of the pseudo-labourers coming in from the yard to say that there was a hard knocking at the gate. I think it is Mr. Radford's voice, added the man, but I'm not sure, and I did not like to get up into the cart to look. Run upstairs to the window, Jinny, cried old Ramley, and you'll soon see. His daughter did on this occasion as she was bid, and soon called down from above. It's old Radford, sure enough, but he's got two men with him. It's all right if he's there, said Jim Ramley, and the gates were opened in a minute to give that excellent gentleman admission. Now Mr. Radford, it must be remembered, was a magistrate for the county of Kent, but his presence created neither alarm nor confusion in the house of the Ramleys, and when he entered, leaving his men in the court for a minute, he said with a laugh, holding the father of that hopeful family by the arm, "'I've come to search and to stop the others. Where are the goods?' "'Safe enough,' answered the farmer. "'No fear, no fear.' "'But can we look under the trap?' asked Mr. Radford, who seemed as well acquainted with the secrets of the place as the owner thereof. "'Aye, aye,' replied the old man. "'Don't leave him too long, that's all.' "'I'll go down myself,' said Radford. "'They've got a scent of it, or I wouldn't find it out.' "'All right, all right,' rejoined the other, in a low voice, and the magistrate, raising his tone, exclaimed, "'Here, Clinch and Adams, you two fools, why don't you come in? "'They say there is nothing here, but we must search. "'We must not take any man's word, not to say that I doubt yours, Mr. Ramley, "'but it is necessary, you know.' "'Oh, do what you like, sir,' replied the farmer. "'I don't care.' A very respectable search was then commenced, and pursued from room to room, one of the men who accompanied Mr. Radford, and who was an officer of the customs, giving old Ramley a significant wink with his right eye as he passed, at which the other grinned. Indeed, had the whole matter not been very well understood between the great majority of both parties, 
it would have been no very pleasant or secure task for any three men in England to enter the kitchen of that farmhouse on such an errand. At length, however, Mr. Radford and his companions returned to the kitchen, and the magistrate thought fit to walk somewhat out of his way towards the left-hand side of the room, when suddenly stopping he exclaimed in a grave tone, "'Hello, Ramley, what's here? These boards seem loose.' "'To be sure they are,' answered the farmer. "'That's the way to the old beer-cellar. "'But there's nothing in it, upon my honour. "'But we must look, Ramley, you know,' said Mr. Radford. "'Come, open it, whatever it is.' "'Okay, with all my heart,' replied the man. "'But you'll perhaps break your head. "'That's your fault, not mine, however.' "'And advancing to the side of the room, "'he took a crooked bit of iron from his pocket, "'not unlike that used for pulling stones out of a horse's hoofs, and insinuating it between the skirting board and the floor, soon raised the trap-door of which we have spoken before. A vault of about nine feet deep was now exposed, with the top of a ladder leading into it, and Mr. Radford ordered the men who were with him to go down first. The one who had given old Ramley the wink in passing descended without ceremony, but the other, who was also an officer, hesitated for a moment. "'Go down, go down, Clinch,' said Mr. Radford, "'You would have a search, and so you shall do it thoroughly.' The man obeyed, and the magistrate paused a moment to speak with the smuggling farmer, saying in a low voice, "'I don't mind their knowing I'm your friend, Ramley. Let them think about that as they like. Indeed, I'd rather they did see we understand each other, so give me a hint if they go too far. I'll bear it out.' Thus saying, he descended into the cellar, and old Ramley stood gazing down upon the three of them from above, with his gaunt figure bending over the trap-door. At the end of a minute or two he called down, "'There, that ought to do, I'm sure. We can't be kept bothering here all day.' Something was said in a low tone by one of the men below, but then the voice of Mr. Radford was heard exclaiming, "'No, no, that will do. We've had enough of it. Go up, I say. There's no use of irritating people by unreasonable suspicions, Mr. Clinch. Is it not quite enough, Adams? Are you satisfied?' "'Oh, quite, sir,' answered the other officer. "'There's nothing but bare walls and an empty beer-barrel.' The next moment the party began to reappear from the trap, the officer Clinch coming up first, with a grave look, and Mr. Radford and the other following, with a smile upon their faces. "'There, all is clear enough,' said Mr. Radford. "'So you gentlemen can go and pursue your search elsewhere. "'I must remain here to wait for my son, whom I sent for to join me, with the servants, as you know. Not that I feared any resistance from you, Mr. Ramley, but smuggling is so sadly prevalent nowadays that one must be on one's guard, you know. A hoarse laugh burst from the whole party round the table, and in the midst of it the two officers retired into the yard, where, mounting their horses, they opened the gates and rode away. As soon as they were gone, Mr. Radford shook old Ramley familiarly by the hand, exclaiming, "'This is the luckiest thing in the world, my good fellow. "'If I can but get them to accuse me of conniving at this job, "'it will be a piece of good fortune, "'which does not often happen to a man.' "'Ramley, as well he might, look a little confounded, "'but Mr. Radford drew him aside and spoke to him for a quarter of an hour, "'in a voice raised hardly above a whisper. "'Numerous laughs and nods and signs of mutual understanding passed between them, "'and the conversation ended by Mr. Radford saying aloud, "'I wonder what can keep Dick so long. "'He ought to have been here before now. "'I sent over to him at eight, and it is past eleven. "'End of chapter eleven.